I was, um, I was reading an article, this came out uh, about a week ago, about the doomsday clock. I don't know if you guys have heard much about it, but the doomsday clock has been set to 100 seconds to midnight, and there's a picture up there. Um, you know, there's a big press release that's created about this. The doomsday clock was created in 1947 uh, by some scientists who worked on the atomic bomb. And they expected that nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons would be the cause of the human race to be annihilated. So they created this clock. And when they originally created it, it was set to seven minutes to midnight, uh, which probably seemed terrifying at the time, but it's now at 100 seconds to midnight. And over the years, the time has bounced backwards and forwards, and the furthest it's ever been away from midnight has been 17 minutes back in 1991. It's been at 100 seconds now for two years. Midnight has always been looming on this clock, and in 75 years, midnight has been moments away. And we're fascinated with science. Everything from helping us make a decision about life. Should I take that job? Should I move to that city? Relationship choices. Signs are always connected with some future event and our vernacular even says a sign of things to come. And fascination with signs and things like doomsday clocks and whatnot isn't a new thing. Today's passage is actually part of a broader discourse that Jesus gave. It's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus was teaching this on the Mount of Olives. And if we rewind back to Matthew 24, verse 3, his disciples had asked Jesus, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So there's a slide there that then shows this was the question that was posed by the disciples and then there's this Olivet Discourse by Jesus, where ultimately we will lead to our passage. And as you read chapters 24 and 25, Jesus gives an answer, and he talks about some, some of the signs that we can expect. Um, you know, what would it look like when the clock is 100 seconds to, to midnight? What might it look like when it's 60 seconds to midnight? However, he doesn't give a date for the end of the world, nor a blueprint of exactly how it will happen. Instead, in Matthew 24, verse 32, he instructs his disciples to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. Is there any point having something that says we're 60 seconds to midnight without really knowing when midnight will strike? It's been moving around. We've always been moments away from doom. And think about this. When criminal activity is occurring in an area, Say there's been a series of break-ins in your neighbourhood, the alert will usually go out from the police to keep watch. All the signs might be there that the risk of burglary is high. But what good is that? You can be vigilant for days, weeks, or even months. But at some point, you're going to let your guard down. You'll become complacent. You'll forget to lock that laundry door, and you too become a victim of burglary. And Jesus uses that same illustration. In Matthew 24, verse 43, he says, But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So again, he says, you must be ready. The Son of Man will come in an hour that you do not expect. Signs are one thing, but they aren't the main thing. 
Jesus didn't dodge the questions posed to him. He gave answers to his disciples. But his focus was on teaching the disciples how to live in his absence instead of chasing signs. Jesus will return. And while we wait, there is a mindset that we ought to build into our lives. Because a sign might cause you to smarten up, tuck in your shirt, wipe your nose. But ultimately, weariness is going to creep in and the tendency will be to slacken off, especially if the wait is long or if there's a great delay. But the right mindset built into our lives, well then, this becomes more of a second nature. And the mindset was taught through the three preceding parables before our passage today. So I'll just quickly summarize those three parables. So um, Matthew 24, 45 to 51 is a parable of two servants whose master went away. One servant faithfully continues his duties. In the absence, he's highly rewarded on his master's return. The other servant is referred to as a wicked servant. He was faithless in fulfilling his responsibilities. He was abusive to his fellow servants. He slacks off. He's off partying with others. The master returns when least expected. And the servant ultimately earns the expected punishment. And the point of this parable is to be faithful always, not just when in the company of the master. Then there's Matthew 25, 1 to 13, the parable of the ten virgins, who were bridesmaids to a wedding celebration. And the plot of this parable turns to the bridegroom delay and the need for preparedness. The lamps that these bridesmaids had bought, well, they ended up burning longer than was expected, and five of them were called foolish. Not because they didn't bring oil, but they didn't bring enough to last through the delays. And the point of that parable is we're all responsible, we're each responsible for our own readiness. It's not on someone else. The responsibility is on ours. And then the third one, Matthew 25, 14 to 30, parable of the bags of gold, where a master was departing on a long trip and he entrusted his wealth to his servants to invest and to tend in his absence. Upon the master's return, he opened the books and he took account as what's happened. Two of the servants doubled what was entrusted to them, but one did nothing. They hid it under the mattress. They buried it in the ground. And although they preserved the master's capital, they generated no return for the master. And the point of this one is to be strategic with the use of our time, not sitting on our hands, but being kingdom focused with the skills and the resources that's been entrusted to us until the master returns to settle his accounts. Which then brings us to our passage today, which strictly is not a parable, though it does employ some elements in this notion of a shepherd, the sheep, the goats, the sorting. There's nothing wrong with sheep and there's nothing wrong with goats, so we shouldn't read it as goats are some, somewhat you know, evil. I mean, I used to have goats and they're very tasty, I've got to tell you. But this is a parable. It's got some parable elements, but it's not just a parable, which is usually about um, a story to try and convey a heavenly meaning. It's also talking about something, an event that is going to happen. Signs are one thing, but they're not the main thing. The doomsday clock says midnight is looming. 75 years, midnight has been moments away. We don't need a doomsday clock to tell us that. The Bible tells us that. For 2,000 years, Christians have believed that Jesus' return is imminent because the signs point to that. 
But what's more important than watching for signs is what we do with our time, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. Jesus is focusing in these teachings on the mindset that we need to have as Christians during this wait. And so as we look in this passage today, I'm going to be covering three things. So who is this about and what is happening? What is the unexpected surprise in this passage? And how do we respond during this moment of wait? So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to be able to gather today and look at your word. We thank you that we know that that is a, a, that is a privilege. Um, not many have that opportunity. We pray that you'll be with us as we go through your word. We pray that our hearts will be stilled and our minds will be silent so that we can receive what it is that you would like to teach today. In your name, amen. So let's have a look more closely at what's happening in this passage. So verses 31 to 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. We begin our passage with Jesus describing himself as the Son of Man. He's not the Son of a man, but the Son of Man. It's a title. And Jesus is alluding to himself as that described in Daniel 7, which I put up on the screen. As being the Son of Man who comes on the clouds of heaven and has given all authority, glory and power, worshipped by all nations. Jesus is saying that he is the one who God has given this authority, glory and power. In Daniel, the Son of Man is brought into the presence of God, the Ancient of Days, to rule over a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Jewish people longed for that day, a day when injustice would be overthrown and when peace would come to the world. The disciples asked back in Matthew 24, verse 3, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus' response, he will come in his glory, surrounded by angels, sitting on a throne. When Jesus walked the earth some 2,000 years ago, his glory, the glory of God, was hidden. It was veiled. The, the glory of God is such that no human could look at or be in its presence. So Jesus made himself nothing by emptying himself. Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7 talk about that. He emptied himself of his glory so that he could accomplish his mission on earth. At the end of his life, though, Jesus prayed to his Father, to God, to restore his former glory. And John 17, 4 and 5, we see that. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So this passage that we're looking at starts with Jesus, who is now in his glory, sitting on a throne as a king would sit over his kingdom. In front of him are all the nations that are gathered, and the king is using his authority to separate the people. Jesus is likened as a shepherd who sorts and separates sheep and goats. And all those that are gathered here in this scene are separated, either, in, either to his right 
or to his left. The scene of Jesus in his glory with all the nations gathered before him is sometime in the future. And the separation of sheep and goats is an analogy of the final judgment scene that will occur after the return of Jesus. This will be a time of accounting, a time of division, with blessings for the righteous and punishment for the wicked. His judgment is exercised over all of humanity, separating all of the people of the world from all history into just two groups. But this is not a trial to find the truth. No shepherd needs to spend long analysing the animal in front of him to know if it is a sheep or a goat. I'm not a shepherd, but I have owned goats and there are sheep on my neighbour's land. The differences between the two are obvious to me. A sheep is a sheep and a goat is a goat. And this is about identity. Jesus is a judge. He knows us intimately. He knows us accurately. And he sees right into our hearts and he knows our identity. He is not trying to find the truth, he is declaring what is truth. You're either a sheep or you're a goat. Verses 34 to 45 then show that Jesus' judgment is fair. For all face the same analysis, both the sheep and the goat. It will be definite, for he has the final say, and it will ultimately hinge on how we have responded to the kingdom of God. The measure that Jesus uses in this is how we have cared for those that acknowledge him as king. And if we have a closer look at verse 40, it states, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So Jesus isn't talking about how we've cared for the poor in general that we are called to have compassion and mercy on those in need, whether they're believers or not. But what Jesus is looking at here is how his disciples and followers are treated, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. The only time that Jesus has referred to people as brothers and sisters, he's been describing it as people who are his disciples. And we see that in Matthew 12, verse 50. Jesus said it plainly, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' followers are his representatives in this world. So the way that his representatives are treated, well, that reflects on the treatment of the king. And we might ask, why is it narrowing in on the least of the brothers? Why is it those who are hungry and thirsty and alone and naked and in prison and sick? It's not an exhaustive list, it's not meant to be. It's, it's representative of people in need. And Jesus doesn't tell us specifically why he's singled out that category of people. But we do see again and again in the Bible that our earthly desire is to care for those who will then care for us. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And Jesus is cutting right across all of this and calls us to care for those who can't give us a reward our only reward is the relationship that we have with our king. So the concern that we show for members of the kingdom reflects the concern that we have for the king. Jesus' kingdom operates on the principles that it's an upside-down place compared to our world, 
whether last is first, the first is last, where humbleness and humility are seen as the great strengths. If you respect your king, you will be concerned for his people. And those who disregard the plight of the members of the kingdom, well, they've demonstrated their disregard for the king of the kingdom. What would Jesus' audience of the day have heard when this passage was shared with them? And what would have surprised or puzzled them? Well, they would have heard a story of judgment, and that wouldn't have been a surprise. Many in Israel believed that there would one day be a final judgment when everything, when everyone would be held morally accountable. It was part of the idea of life that ultimately it would all turn out fair because God is fair, God is just. They recognised the main characters of the story, the king, who was also a shepherd. And this shepherd king view was a very common image for Israel and many cultures. The king's job was to lead, to guide and to protect and to shepherd them. In Israel at the time of Jesus, they already had the idea that the Messiah would be the good shepherd king in contrast to all of the failed and frail kings that had come before them in their past. They knew very well that the shepherd king, what he was doing. Sheep and goats were generally grazed together during the day, but at night they were separated. The sheep were fine in the open air out in the paddocks, but the goats had to be protected, sheltered from the cold. They had to be brought in. So then, if all of that would have just seemed normal, what are the surprises, or what would have been the surprises in the story? Well, both the sheep and the goats saw, with their own eyes, other people in need. You didn't see anyone in the passage ejected to say, never saw anyone in need. They actually saw people who are hungry and thirsty, strangers, those needing clothing, sick, in prison. The sheep did what was expected. They fed the hungry and the thirsty. They welcomed strangers. They shared their clothing. They visited the sick. Their surprise is that somehow, when they did these things, that was coming naturally to them, that they'd been serving the shepherd king. The goats also saw people in need and walked on by, wrapped up in their own concerns for the day. They had places to go and things to do. And these traditional acts of mercy were just not in their iPhone calendar that day. So imagine their surprise when they discover that those average people that they walked by were actually the shepherd king. If we had known it was you, of course we would have stopped to help. We would have wanted to impress you. The surprise is not that people are commended for, for caring for those in need, nor is it surprising that people are judged for their failure to do so. The great surprise here is where Jesus is found, in the messiness in the ambiguity of human life. The real surprise is that the shepherd king has chosen to identify himself with these people who are the least of us. The very people that we tend to overlook or look past or look down. And there's another surprise that when it's us that's in that place, when we are hungry or thirsty, wandering or lost or sick, well, that's where Jesus will be. Jesus will be there among us. 
And then he comes and he sums up the outcome of what will happen after the sorting in verse 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So the groups are sorted into two, and each has a destination. And this is the future of every person who has ever walked the earth. It's real. And it's going to be forever. Eternal punishment. Eternal life. All of this is an expression of God's rule. Jesus is both the least of these, but also the one who will judge. For now, we live in a world that is in a state of tension. On one hand, our sin and its consequences are there. But on the other hand, we have God's restraining, God's grace in restraining the consequences as he patiently withholds judgment. During this time of wait, do we have the right mindset? Are we being prepared? Are we being productive? Are we caring for each other? I'm conscious that this passage will raise some questions. So the first one I could think of, is this teaching that we can earn our way into heaven by caring for poor Christians? Another one, how do I know if I'm a sheep? Well, on the first, if this was the only passage in the Bible that spoke on the topic, then I can see how a plain reading might, might, might make it look like that salvation is earned based on social justice and social action. But the Bible speaks volumes about this, and it's clear that salvation is for those who accept Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Those that honour him as king. I've put some passages up. So John 3.16 says, Whoever believes in him shall not perish. There's nothing we can do to earn our way. It's faith and belief alone. The Bible doesn't express that, that there's just genuine belief, that it would expect to see action coupled with the genuine belief as an outward expression of that belief. And James speaks a lot about this in James 2. Verses 18 and 26, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And if we think about this practically, if you could earn it, then how much would be enough? Would it need to be 100 dinners for those that are hungry? Would five be enough? And another, if we we're going to its logical conclusion, are we saying that, that every unbeliever has never helped someone who is in need? And that every believer has helped 100% of everyone in need? No, I mean, that, that's not logical. And Ephesians 2 does address that it's not about counting and it's not about that. For it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And it's not from yourself, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So it's not about measuring. We can't earn our way. Accepting Jesus as king means that we are subjects of his kingdom. But that does cause us to follow what the king says. So there are some behaviours that we'll have to eliminate, and there's other behaviours that we'll have to amplify. So real, there will be some actions Jesus calls us to help with the simple things. Giving a hungry person a meal, 
a thirsty person a drink, welcoming a stranger, cheering the sick, visiting a prisoner. It's things that everyone can do. And those that helped did not think they were helping Christ and therefore earning their salvation. The sheep's surprise was not, not about that. The help was a natural reaction of a loving heart, a compassion, showing compassion and mercy for others, reflecting ultimately what the values of the kingdom are. And in contrast, the whole attitude of those who failed to help the goats. If we had known it was you, we would have gladly helped, but we just thought it was some common person that was not worth helping. What this passage does teach us, the good deeds are the fruit, not the root of salvation. So no, you can't earn your way. But on the second, how do you know if you're a sheep? Well, the answer is pretty simple. You know you're a sheep if you know, if you know Jesus. And I don't mean you've intellectually heard his name, but you know him in your heart. And John 10, verses 14 to 16 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep who are not in the sheep pen. I must bring them also in. They too listen to my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So if you have relationship with Jesus, just as Jesus has relationship with his father, if your heart stirs for the things of Christ, then you are a sheep and not a goat. You may be here, you know, new to being a Christian, still having some questions. And John 10 also says in that passage that there are sheep that are not yet in his pen and Jesus is calling their name. Those people only need to say yes to accept him as Lord and Saviour. How else might we respond? Well, let's open our eyes to the needs of those around us, allowing God to move our hearts. We can love and support each other. We're in a community together. The Bible calls us to come together as a church, and we do that at a grassroots level. We're here together in community. We can love and support each other. We're in community together. And so those here that are having a hard time, what might we actually do to help them? We need to take action. It's not saying we need to do everything, but there would be something that we could do. And if you have a need, if you're here today with a need, well, take some comfort that Jesus is actually right there next to you as he's there with the least of these. But do also share your need with one of your brothers or sisters here to give them the opportunity and the honour of helping you in your time of need. If you stay silent about it, how can anyone reach out to help? God is not just looking for our worship or our engagement in religious activities. He's looking for our love to be demonstrated through our love for others, for the least of these in this world. And so in this time of wait, 
Ask God to fill you afresh with his compassion. Make justice, love and mercy your priorities. Be part of that solution during this time of delay. And as we wait for the day that Jesus will come back in his glory, and he will, let us never neglect the least of our brothers and sisters, because serving them is serving Jesus himself. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that, um, that you've spoken to us. Thank you that you haven't shied away from from all the things that, um, that are in this world. And warts and all, you just tell it to us as it is. Um, we know that one day you will return. We know that one day you will judge. And we just pray that in this time that you stir us into action. You stir us into compassion and mercy for our brothers and sisters. But not just them, you stir us into action amongst this world so that we can be the light on the hill to a world that needs to know you. Pray that you'll help us to be productive with this time for your kingdom purposes. In your name, amen.